to mature tree in full flower. So far we've seen the seed of God's kingdom in a new creation under his son and bride awaiting a Sabbath rest. And now what I want to do this morning is look at how the kingdom of God is constituted before the fall and how it is reconstituted after the fall. And in order to do this, we need to understand the concept of covenant, the concept of covenant, because the story of God's kingdom in a new creation under his son and bride runs along the two tracks of covenant, the covenant of works with Adam and the covenant of grace with Christ. Genesis chapter 2 verses 15 to 17 gives us the covenant of works with Adam Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, gives us the covenant of grace with Christ, at least in seed form. And these two covenants are the tracks along which the story of God's kingdom travels. And if we're going to understand the story of God's kingdom and a new creation under his son and bride awaiting a Sabbath rest, then we must understand this concept of covenant. Now, in order to do that, I want to first give you a picture Uh, It's the picture of two giants. I want you to picture uh, these giants. Uh, They are so big that their foot is the size of this castle. Okay? So big. Um, Huge giants. Um, They have around their waist a massive belt. Not a, a belt like we wear, a thin one, but one of those boxing belts when you win the world championship this huge belt around this huge giant's waist and on that belt are millions upon millions upon millions of little hooks tiny little hooks on the belt and hanging on those hooks are people remember these are giants foot the size of the castle okay imagine them walking down that hill there towards the lake and Both giants have people attached to them on their belts. Now, if one giant trips and falls as he's walking down that hill there, everyone attached to him trips and falls with him. Okay? If the other giant's walking down the bank and he trips and he falls and then he gets back up, well, everyone attached to him trips, falls, and then rises again with him. Now, before you think I've gone a bit crazy, uh, I got that picture from the Puritan Thomas Goodwin. Listen to Thomas Goodwin. He said, In God's sight there are two men, Adam and Jesus Christ, and these two men have all other men hanging from their girdle strings. Okay? In God's sight there are two men, Adam and Jesus Christ, and these two men have all other men hanging from their girdle strings. And that picture gives you the theological substructure of the whole Bible. Okay? Two men as heads of two covenants. Adam, the first giant, the head of the covenant of works. Jesus Christ, the second giant, the head of the covenant of grace. And those two covenants, those two men as the heads of those covenants form the theological substructure of the story of God's kingdom. Uh, Let me put it like this. Before the fall, the kingdom of God was constituted on the covenant of works with Adam, the first giant. And after the fall, the kingdom of God is reconstituted on the covenant of grace with Jesus Christ, the second giant. And what I want to do is first look at Adam in the covenant of works in chapter 2. And then we'll look at uh, and the consequences that come from him breaking the covenant of works in chapter 3. And then we'll look at the promise of a son in the covenant of grace in chapter 3. And all that that means for the reconstitution of the kingdom. So that's where we're going. Basically two points this morning. Adam in the covenant of works. Christ in the covenant of grace. So let's begin with Adam, chapter 2, verse 15 to 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, 
You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now you'll notice in those verses that the word covenant doesn't appear. Okay, the word covenant doesn't appear in chapter 2, doesn't appear in chapter 3. First use of the word covenant in Genesis, I think it's chapter 8, 9, with Noah. God makes a covenant. So the question is, where am I getting this idea that there's a covenant of works if the word is not present? Well, uh, you don't need the word to be present for the concept to be present. Um, For example, the word marriage isn't used in chapter 2 with Adam and Eve, and yet we all agree there was a marriage that took place. Okay, So, So you don't need the word to be present in order for the concept to be present. Uh, Same with the word sin. It's never used in chapter 3 with the fall, and yet we all agree that this was the original sin that entered the world. So it's what's called the word concept fallacy. All right, if somebody says, oh, there's no covenant that works with Adam, there's no word you can say. That's the word concept fallacy. Okay? Uh, you don't need the word present for the concept to be present. Just like the word Trinity is never used in the Bible. Uh, it doesn't mean the concept of God, the Trinity, doesn't exist. Of course it does. You just don't need the word present. Well, it's the same with covenant. Okay, There is a covenant going on here even though the word isn't used. Uh, how do we define what a covenant is? Well, here's, I think, a good definition. A life and death commitment between two parties involving promises and obligations. A life and death commitment between two parties, in this case God and man, involving promises and obligations sealed with an oath. Okay? And the best way to illustrate that is marriage. In the Bible, marriage is called a covenant. And what is marriage? It is a life and death commitment between two people where they make promises and accept responsibilities in the relationship until death do us part. It's a life and death commitment. And it's the same here in chapter 2, verse 15 to 17. What is formed between Adam and God is a life and death commitment. It involves promises and obligations. The obligation is obvious enough, verse 16 and 17. You may surely eat of every tree of the knowledge, of of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Now remember the picture I gave earlier in the weekend of the big circle and the little circle and the horizontal line in between the two. Okay, this tree, the knowledge of good and evil, is like that horizontal line. It's establishing the distinction between God the creator and man the creature. Okay? It establishes the creator-creature distinction. And what the tree was saying to Adam was, God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven, not your will. The tree embodied the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil was a call to radical obedience. <clears throat> this was Adam's covenant obligation of radical obedience to God. And if he did not obey, then we see the life and death consequences. He would die. That's the obligation part of this covenant. But the promise of what God would give if he did obey is not explicit. We have to infer it from the surrounding context. There's no explicit promise here regarding the tree of life. uh, But the command in chapter 2.16 suggests that Adam was perhaps free to eat from it. Verse 16, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you may not eat. So perhaps Adam was free to eat from the tree of life. And yet, come with me to chapter 3. Verse 22 to 24, it says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. 
It's the word also that's very important. It implies that Adam had not yet eaten from the tree of life, which suggests that access to this tree was conditioned upon Adam's obedience in relation to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Okay? And he said again, it's like uh, he, has, he was only allowed access to the tree of life had he obeyed in relation to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because up to now, he hasn't eaten from the tree of life. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. So it implies that he hasn't eaten from the tree of life. And this is seen in verse 24, where Adam is removed from the garden because God does not want him to have access to the tree of life. Okay, the tree of life was not Adam's to eat. Why? Because he had disobeyed. And then if you turn that around, that implies that had he obeyed, he would have been allowed access to the tree of life. So here was the life and death commitment between God and Adam. If you obey... You can eat from the tree of life. If you disobey, then death and curse and removal from the garden. If I could put it like this, Adam was called to fast from one tree in order that he might have the right to feast at another tree. So he was put on a probationary test in the covenant of works. He was called to fast from one tree that he might feast from another tree. And isn't it interesting that Jesus' first temptation is to do with fasting? Okay, so Jesus is on a probationary test in the wilderness when he's tempted by the serpent. And what does the serpent get Adam to do? Gets him to break his fast early. Okay, and what does the serpent try to get Jesus to do? To break his fast early. Okay, so uh, you can see this basic element of the covenant between God and Adam, a life and death commitment with promises and obligations. And all of that is to say that Adam was created by God as a covenant man. Okay? He was a covenant man. This is not just a private individual. This isn't, this isn't a private arrangement between God and Adam. This is a public arrangement. Marriage is a public thing. Covenants are public things. And Adam was a public man, not a private man. Uh, this could be seen by the fact that he was the first man of all men, and therefore he was the head, biologically, of the human race, but also covenantally. He didn't act as a private man. When Adam tripped the giant, okay, we all fell with him. We were all attached to him. Like we read last night in Romans 5, through one man sin entered the world and death through sin because all men have sinned. Adam was that first man who sinned and he sinned in a public capacity. And what this means is that Genesis chapter 2, the kingdom of God is established, it is constituted on a covenant of works and the success or failure of the kingdom of God on the earth is dependent on Adam's success or failure. The, the kingdom of God rests on this giant's shoulders. If he obeys, then the kingdom of God will prosper and expand and we will inherit eternal life through Adam. If he disobeys, then the kingdom of God will be ruined. And we all know how the story plays out in chapter 3, but let's just remind ourselves of how the fall happens. Chapter 3, verse 1 now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, what do we have here? A talking serpent. Okay, so are we now in the land of fantasy and fiction or are we still in the world of history? Well, I think we're in the world of history. I think this is a real serpent that this, uh, Satan took the form of. I think he is a real talking serpent in the garden. And the reason I say that is because evil is supranatural. It's abnormal. And what we have here is abnormal. A talking serpent is not normal. Okay? And that doesn't um, decrease the historicity of the text. It actually 
increases it uh, because the serpent is doing something that is ab abnormal to nature. Serpents don't speak. And what this means is that evil that comes into the world from the outside through Satan is supranatural. It's not a natural part of the created order. It's abnormal. Evil is abnormal. And a talking serpent conveys that. And what does this serpent do? He doesn't uh, directly contradict God's words at first. He just twists them. God said there was only one tree they couldn't eat from. And Satan asked if God said they couldn't eat from any tree. Now look back at what God said in chapter 2, 16 and 17. Uh, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge and good of evil you shall not eat. And then look at what the serpent says. Um, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? God gives this expansive provision. You, are, uh, you may surely eat from any tree except one, but Satan turns it into a restrictive prohibition. Did God say you shall not eat from any tree? Do you see what he's doing? He's trying to make God look like a killjoy. He's trying to make God look like he's uh, not a God of goodness. Therefore, he is challenging the very nature of God. He's challenging the godness of God. And what does Eve do? Verse 2 and 3. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Notice what she does. She doesn't rebuke the serpent and say, Who are you, a mere creature? to be challenging the authority of our creator king. No, instead she enters into dialogue with the serpent. She acts like the authority of God is up for debate. If you like, she starts to rub out that horizontal line between the big circle and the little circle. This is her first mistake. It's not that the fall occurs at this moment, but her foot is starting to slip because she's already starting to deny God his position of absolute authority, the one who decides right from wrong. And instead, she adopts what is a neutral position as she discusses God's word with the devil. And look what happens when a creature enters into discussions over God's word with another creature. God's word gets minimized and changed. Did you notice that in her words? She minimizes their privileges. God said, you are free to eat, or you may surely eat. She says, we may eat. So she takes out the word surely, or free to eat. She then understates the potential judgment. God said, you will certainly die. You will surely die. She says, you will die. Right? She takes out that emphasis on surely, certainly. And then she maximizes the prohibition. God says, you must not eat. God said, you must not eat from the tree. She said, you must not eat and you must not touch it. But you can go and swing your hammock in it if you want Eve. You're just not allowed to eat from it. Okay, so the touching is her um, maximizing the prohibition in a way that God had not done. So do you see what happens when a creature enters into negotiations with another creature over the authority of God's word? God's word gets minimized, understated, and changed. Um, and then the serpent speaks again. And this time, having just twisted God's word, now he directly contradicts it. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. Quoting God, surely die. You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God knowing good and evil. What he offers Eve is the opportunity to become like God, to become God of her own world, to have her own kingdom. It's all about the kingdom. She wants her own kingdom to become like God. Um, it's out of interest. How many people here have watched the series Breaking Bad on Netflix? Yeah. Oh, very worldly. Um, <laughs> Let me pray. Let me pray for you. Uh, <clears throat> I've also watched it. 
probably one of the best things I've ever watched. It's absolutely incredible. It's about a man called Walter White, chemist teacher who's dying of lung cancer, and he decides to start making meth. He's got six months to live, starts making meth to provide for his family, his wife and uh, disabled child, and uh, he has good intentions, trying to provide for his family. And in the end, it just gets out of control. His lung cancer gets healed a bit, and uh, he ends up having years, and he just keeps making meth. And it gets to the point where people are dying. The, the cartel in South America are after them. It's just running out of control. People have lost their lives. And his little sidekick, Jesse, says to him, why do you keep going? It's got out of control. We've got to stop this. And he said, what is it that keeps you going? And he said, it's not about the money. It's not about the meth. It's about the empire. It's this brilliant moment where he admits that he just loves being in control of everything. It's not about the money, not about the meth. It's about the empire. And for Eve, it wasn't so much about the fruit. It was about the empire. You shall be like God. And that is what she grasped for. She wanted to rub out that horizontal line and she wanted to take that little circle and put it right up beside God and establish another kingdom. And the kingdom that she established was the kingdom of autonomy. Autonomy, human autonomy, where man decides for him or herself what they will do in this world. And Adam is complicit, verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. So she falls and then she hands some to Adam and in his silent passivity, he falls with her and he fails as a son to his heavenly father but he also fails in his three offices. Do you remember? Prophet, priest, king. As prophet, he fails by keeping quiet. Remember, he was chosen to be the prophet of God in Eden, speaking God's words to God's world. And here he is. He's already spoken God's word to his wife because she's quoting him in verse 2 because she wasn't created in chapter 2 when God gave the command to Adam. So Adam has taught his wife God's word. He's been prophetic in his office. And yet when the serpent comes, he doesn't speak up and says, thus says the Lord. He stays quiet. That's his first failure. Then as a priest of Eden, remember Eden, the garden in Eden was like this garden temple. As a priest of Eden, he was to guard God's garden from anything unclean. Remember, to work and keep it. And the serpent, as we know later on in the Bible, is an unclean animal. And we read in verse 1 that he was more crafty than any other beast. And so Adam should have kept the serpent out of the garden. He should have crushed the serpent in the head at the tree. Um, And he didn't. And then as king, he should have exercised dominion over the serpent. He should have crushed him in the head. should have removed him as the king of Eden. So Adam fails in his three offices. He fails as a son on earth to his heavenly father, a son of God on earth, fails with his heavenly father, and then he fails as prophet, priest, king. And in the beginning, God established a kingdom, the kingdom of God, and here are his creatures, Adam and Eve, establishing their own kingdom, the kingdom of man, where the self interprets itself and where the self acts for itself. And as I said, that, the name of that kingdom is autonomy. But this world is God's world, and one cannot establish a rival kingdom in God's world without there being consequences. And so look at the consequences in chapter 3 that follow. There is relationship breakdown with God, verses 8 to 11. God comes walking in the garden to find Adam and Eve, and they're off hiding in the bushes. Verse 12, there's relationship breakdown between each other because the man starts to blame the woman for why he ate. There's relationship breakdown with the earth, verse 17 and 19. Uh, The earth will, will produce thorns and thistles. 
so that you no longer have this paradise garden where it's just producing fruit all by itself. Now you have Adam outside the garden having to work the ground by the sweat of his brow in order to produce food. And then you have the removal of this first couple from the garden temple. Verse 23 and 24, God puts them out of the garden and places cherubim on the east side with a flashing sword, which means that the only way to get back to the tree of life after this will be for a man to go under the sword of judgment, to die, to rise again, and then get access to the tree of life. Okay? So Adam is put outside the garden. So these are the consequences. Relationship breakdown with God vertically, with each other horizontally, with the earth itself, and then you have removal from God's garden temple. Okay? And the rest of the Bible is about how we get back into the garden. Okay? How you move from east to west. And uh, I don't have time to go into it, but notice the geography of the Old Testament. Abraham is called from the east, and where does he move? He moves west into the promised land. Um, Jacob goes east into exile. Then he comes back in to the promised land, east to west. Um, Israel when they finally come into the promised land after 40 years of wandering, they come in from the east, opposite Jericho, east to west. Uh, When they get sent into exile, where do they go? Judah and Israel, east into Syria, Israel, east into Babylon, um, Judah. When they come back out of exile from Babylon, where do they come from? They come east to west. And then when Jesus uh, comes down from Samaria, to go to Jerusalem, he goes over the Jordan, into the land, uh, across the Jordan, then crosses the Jordan, comes to Jericho, and then goes to Jerusalem. He moves east to west. And then when he dies, what happens? The temple curtain is torn in two. What's on the temple curtain? Cherubim. And what direction is the temple curtain facing? East. Okay, so when you see these geographical references in the Old Testament and New Testament, don't ignore them. They're all part of this Garden of Eden moving east out uh, from the Garden of Eden. Cain moves east. The people of Shinar who build the Tower of Babel move east and settle east. Um, So it's very significant. And that is one of the consequences. The kingdom of God is ruined because God's people are thrust out to the east. So uh, that's how the kingdom of God is ruined through the covenant of works being... um, broken by Adam. Okay, the eternal life that was promised to him and his descendants on the personal and perfect obedience to the probationary command is lost. Okay, he never wins it for him or his descendants. Now, another comment on why does God put him out of the garden? Verse 22, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat And live forever. So notice what's going on here. God is preventing any further aggravation of his sin. So he's already sinned by reaching out his hand and eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now God's saying, lest he reach out also to eat from the tree of life. So he doesn't want him to aggravate the sin, but also he doesn't want him to confirm himself in the sin, misery, and death. Putting Adam outside of the garden was a way of actually making Adam redeemable. If Adam had ate from the tree of life as a fallen man, he would have forever been a fallen man for all eternity and all his descendants with him. But putting him out of the tree, out of the garden, away from the tree of life, God actually makes Adam redeemable. Yes, he will die outside of the garden, but if this descendant of the woman can come, and die and rise again under the flaming sword of judgment and get to the tree of life, then Adam and all his descendants, uh, some of his descendants can be saved. So God actually shields Adam here from eternal condemnation by putting him outside of the garden and not letting him eat from the tree of life. Which brings us to the second covenant. So we have the covenant of works with Adam, the giant 
all the human race attached to his belt, and he fell at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and we all fell with him. But now we come in Genesis 3.15 to the covenant of grace. God uh, does not abandon his basic structure of the world, a kingdom through covenant. Rather, he just makes a new covenant, and it's a covenant of grace. And here we come to the second giant, Jesus Christ. Okay? And this promise of a seed of the offspring. So keep in mind that picture of the two giants, Adam and Jesus Christ, and they have uh, men hanging from their girdle strings. Now, Genesis 3.15 is the beginning of the covenant of grace, and this covenant runs all the way through the Bible. And every covenant that is mentioned is just a different administration or expression of the covenant of grace. Remember I said the story of God's kingdom runs along the two tracks of covenant, covenant of works with Adam, covenant of grace with Christ. And the covenant of grace in the Old Testament is in shadow form. It's in seed form here in Genesis 3.15. And then it grows like a little shoot, then a plant, then a tree, and then come the new covenant in the New Testament. It comes into full blossom. So one covenant of grace different administrations. You have the covenant of preservation with Noah. You have the covenant of promise with Abraham. You have the covenant of law with Israel. You have the covenant of the kingdom with David. And then you have the new covenant with the church. Those five expressions of the covenant are just different expressions of the one covenant of grace. Okay, And that covenant It's first given in embryo form, in a seed form in Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So in response to Adam's fall, God does not abandon his basic kingdom through covenant structure to bring blessing. Instead, he makes another covenant, this covenant of grace. And at the heart of the covenant of grace is the promise of holy war against the serpent. And notice that it's God who initiates the war. I will put enmity between you and the woman, speaking to the serpent. And this enmity occurs on three levels. There is the enmity between Satan, the serpent, and the woman. The enmity between the serpent's offspring and the woman's offspring. And then the enmity between the serpent and an individual child, son of the woman. So let's look at each of those levels of enmity. The enmity between Satan and the woman. Uh, This actually is a statement of grace. I will put enmity between you and the woman. This is election by grace because the woman, think about it, was currently on the serpent's side. She had formed an alliance with the serpent. Okay, And so for God to now say he's going to put enmity between the serpent and the woman, that's his way of choosing Eve and bringing her back onto his side. So, so Eve is the first elect member of the Christian church. God elects her by putting enmity between the serpent and her. Um, that's an act of grace. But then there's also... Um, so the serpent started by attacking the woman, okay? And God corrects the fall of the kingdom by first choosing the woman who was attacked, okay? And that's his gracious work in Eve's life. He would have changed her affections, her attitude, because at this point she was on the serpent's side, hating God, disobeying God, eating from the fruit, okay? And here is God saying, I'm going to make her one of mine again. It's a beautiful act of grace on God's part. And then there is the next level of enmity between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. And here we see that the electing grace of God to Eve continues as preserving grace to her offspring. So we have electing grace at the first level, and now we have preserving grace. Because if there's going to be enmity between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman... That means God is going to preserve her line. 
that there will always be a faithful, holy line of descendants from the woman who will always be in opposition to the serpent and his descendants. So what we have here is the grace of preservation. God promises to preserve a people for himself who will fight against the serpent, who will be in his army and will have attitudes and affections for God. Okay, now this offspring of the serpent is not little snakes running around the earth. Uh, though have you seen that um, BBC planet where the snakes come after those little lizards on the island? Have you seen that? Ah, it's like something out of hell, isn't it? This little lizard comes up and you just see 20 snakes going for it. You can uh, watch it on YouTube later. But that is not the offspring of the serpent. Okay? The offspring of the serpent is humanity that is in opposition to God. Cain is an offspring of the serpent. Esau, Ishmael, um, Pharaoh, uh, Goliath, um, Assyria, Babylon. All of these uh, people and nations become the offspring of the serpent who oppose the offspring of the woman which is Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Israel, okay, David, Solomon, etc. Okay. And so when you see those two lines form through the story of the Bible, be thinking of God's electing and preserving grace promised in Genesis 3.15 that's trickling all the way through redemptive history uh, and forming these two groups of people. And then we come to the third level of enmity. It's between the serpent and an individual uh, descendant of Eve. He shall bruise your head and you shall crush, uh, bruise his heel. Now at this point, the enmity moves from a collective enmity to an individual enmity. It's now an enmity, a fight between a son, a descendant, an offspring of the woman, an individual offspring, and the serpent himself. Okay, now there are various things that we can see about this offspring of the woman. And here we go back to the analogy of the seed. Remember the DNA code for a, a seed to grow into a full tree is all in that seed, that little tiny plant encased in the hard shell. And what I want to show you is these two lines of Genesis 3.15 is the gospel in embryo. We have here the Lord Jesus Christ in embryo form. So let's see what we can see from just these two lines. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. I have uh, seven things that we can see about Jesus Christ in this. Number one, this offspring of the woman will be a son. Do you see that? He shall bruise your head. A male descendant is coming. Okay? So what we are looking for, as you read the story of the Bible, is we're looking for a son. Adam was called God's son, but he forfeited the right. And so God promised another son. And who is Abraham waiting for? A son. Who does David get promised? A son to sit on his throne. So a son is coming to fight the serpent. And so throughout the Bible story, we're always looking for the promised son. Isaac was the promised son. David was a promised son. Solomon was a promised son. We're looking for a promised son. Uh, second, he will descend from a woman, the offspring of the woman. And there is no mention of his father. Now that's surprising because in the Bible, it's the man who holds the power of begetting descendants. Basic biology tells us that the seed in the semen produces the offspring. Okay? So the power to produce offspring is in the man. Yet there is no mention here of the father. It's the offspring of the woman. Okay? But in order for the woman to have offspring, Adam needs to be involved. And yet the emphasis here is on this individual coming from the woman alone. I think what we have here is the faintest echo of the virgin birth. There's no mention of his father, just a descendant of the woman. Third, 
He will be a representative son. Just as the serpent represents his offspring in the fight, so this son will represent the offspring of the woman, the the collective group of holy seed of the woman. And you see this throughout the Old Testament. You have fights between between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman, and their fights often occur through representatives. So Moses is the representative of the offspring of the woman, and Pharaoh is the representative of the offspring of the serpent, and they fight. Uh, You see it with David and Goliath. David is the representative of Israel. Goliath is the representative of the Philistines. Uh, You see it in the book of Judges, where you have some of the judges who fight the representatives of the enemy. And notice how some of the people in Judges get killed in the head. Tent peg in the head, millstone on the head. Okay? And all of this is connected to Genesis 3.15. He shall bruise your head. So, he will be a representative son. Fourth, he will be a warrior son. Uh, God is going to put enmity between the serpent and this seed. And it is going to come to a climax in a fight where there's going to be bruising. So, it's going to be a warrior son. Fifth, He will be an obedient son. Uh, It implies that the son of the woman is going to fulfill the mission that God gives him to fight the serpent. He's going to be willing to do it, obedient to the call to go to war. Sixth, he will be a triumphant son. Uh, He shall bruise your head. He's going to strike a fatal blow to the head of the serpent. And notice the reversal of order. You've got the enmity between the serpent and the woman, between the serpent's offspring and the woman's offspring, and then it flips it. He, the offspring of the woman, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So the order is flipped, I think, to show that the triumph is going to be with the offspring of the woman. Initially, the dominance will be from the offspring of the serpent to the offspring of the woman, and then he shall bruise your head. There's going to be a change and a victory for the son. Number seven, he will be a triumphant but suffering son. Do you see that? He's going to fight the serpent. And even though he will be victorious, crushing him in the head, he is going to be bruised in the heel. Now, the anatomical part is significant here. It is all that the serpent can strike because he's been humiliated. He's on his belly in verse 14, so he can only strike from low down. And yet the son will survive the strike and live on. The strike at the heel is not going to be fatal, but the strike on the serpent's skull will be. But notice that it's the heel that will do the crushing of the head. So it's as if in the moment of the heel hitting the head, that the serpent strikes as well. The son will, this descendant will ultimately be victorious, but he will come out of his battle with the serpent with some scars, with a bruised heel. Okay? So let me just summarize those seven points that we've seen from just those two lines. It's this God promises a representative son who will descend from a woman and go to war with the devil and destroy him. The individual will be a man, a son of Eve, who will represent God's chosen people. And though he will suffer, he will be victorious. And there's no mention of descending from Adam, just descending from the woman. Now this promise of Genesis 3.15, it's made with the woman and her offspring, That offspring ultimately is this descendant, but it's also made with her descendants, plural. And that's the same in the covenant of grace all the way through. The promises made to Abraham and his offspring, to David and his offspring, to Israel and to a thousand generations. Um, And so the covenant of grace is never just made to an individual. It's always made to the individual and their offspring. Okay, And I'll just leave it there for Baptists to think about that. Okay. Okay. Uh, but at the heart of this covenant of restoration is the promise of war between a serpent and a son. And that is 
the basic theme of how the kingdom of God is reconstituted. Remember, it was constituted on the covenant of works with Adam. Now we have it reconstituted on the covenant of grace with this descendant of the woman. This is how God will restore and reconstitute his kingdom. And at this point, I want to take you to the New Testament because I want you to see where this enmity comes to its climax. The ancient serpent resurfaces in the devil as he comes to tempt Jesus in the wilderness. And notice how Jesus, what temptations there are, fasting, just like Adam in the garden, uh, at the temple, garden temple in Eden, and to give him all the kingdoms of the world. That is what Adam was offered God in the beginning if he had passed his probationary test. And here's the serpent coming and offering all those things to Jesus. But he wants Jesus to break the fast. He wants him to test God's presence. And he wants him to get the kingdom without any suffering. Okay? And Jesus, we know, resists all of those temptations. But that wasn't the last temptation. The last temptation was when he was on the cross. And the temptation was to come down from the cross. But instead, Jesus remained on the cross. He remained on a tree. And as we read earlier in Mark chapter 15, Jesus was crucified on a tree at a place called Golgotha. And what does it mean, Mark chapter 15? It means the place of a skull. Think about that, place of a skull. Some people think that's because the place gets its name because the shape of the hill on which Jesus crucified looked like a skull, and it may have. But what does the skull symbolize? It symbolizes death. But isn't it interesting that the anatomy of the body that is mentioned for the place where Jesus dies is a skull, a head. He shall bruise your head. He shall crush your head. Death was what the serpent brought into the garden, And death was what Jesus suffered in our place on the cross at Golgotha, the place of the skull. And yet it is by that same death that the serpent, Satan, was crushed in the head. Jesus received the scars of his death. He shall bruise your heel and you shall bruise his heel. He received the scars and yet he himself was victorious in that death. If I could put it like this, the first Adam should have crushed the serpent by a tree. He didn't, and he brought the curse of thorns into the world. The second and last Adam crushed the serpent on a tree with a crown of thorns on his head, bearing the curse. Adam was naked by a tree. Jesus dies naked on a tree. And so the New Testament shows us that this seed promise of the Son in Genesis 3.15, finds its organic fulfillment, its full blossom in the moment when Jesus dies on a tree at at Golgotha. Because in that moment, he crushes the serpent in the head at the place of the skull, and he does so through his own injury. The injury is not fatal to the son. Uh, He only is bruised in the heel, not the head. And so he survives and lives on. He is resurrected from the dead. Uh, And he comes out of the grave with the scars of his fight on his body. Let me take you back to Golgotha just for a moment. Did you notice who it is who's standing by watching him? In, uh, I think it was verse 40 and 41. It's his mother, Mary. Now, we Protestants get all very nervous with Mary at the cross. Get her away. You know, Uh, we don't like pictures of Jesus. Never mind pictures of Jesus on a cross with Mary standing by his side. And of course, we reject the Catholic teaching that Mary is co-redemptrix and she's interceding for Jesus. I mean, that's just a heresy. Okay, and yet let's not push her away. Why is she there? The seed of the woman. That is why she's there. She's there pointing to the cross, saying, look, the seed of the woman. He descended from her without any human father. 
And that, I think, is one of the reasons Mary is standing there, to remind us of the offspring of the woman who is crushing the serpent in the head. So this is how the kingdom of God is reconstituted. It fell with Adam in the covenant of works, disobeying, and it is reconstituted with this promise of a son who will descend from a woman and crush the serpent in the head. And that all comes to its fulfillment in uh, the death of Jesus Christ at Golgotha. Now, I love how Romans 1 begins, where Paul begins his gospel in Romans 1. Uh, if you just want to turn there, Romans 1. He says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And what is the gospel? Concerning his Son. Do you see that? The gospel is about the Son of God, Jesus Christ, descended from David according to the flesh, declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. That is what the gospel is about. It is about the promise of a son. And Genesis 1 to 3 gives us the DNA of the gospel. Genesis 3.15 is the gospel in embryo where we have this promise of a son who will come to crush the head of the serpent and reconstitute God's kingdom. Well, I want to finish by taking you to a little tool shed in Oxford. Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote a great little article called Lessons in a Tool Shed, or Lessons from a Tool Shed. And Lewis goes into his tool shed in his back garden one day and he sees inside the shed a beam of light coming in through a crack in the wall. And he watches this beam of light standing outside it and he sees the specks of dust and he's looking at and looking across this beam of light. And then he said he stepped into the light and looked along the beam of light and he looked out of the shed and he saw some trees and some birds flying and he said it is one thing to stand outside the light and look at it it's another thing to stand inside the light and look along it and so my question to you this weekend is where do you stand when we've looked at this uh, three chapters of Genesis have you stood on the outside looking at it thinking oh, it's all very interesting God's kingdom and a new creation under his son and bride awaiting a Sabbath rest Jesus is the descendant of the woman crushing the serpent do you stand on the outside looking at it or have you stepped into the light and are you looking along the light along the trajectory of scripture and do you see Jesus at Golgotha dying for you, for your sins, crushing the serpent in the head for you so that you might have the power to change your life and walk with him. There's a difference between standing and looking at light and standing in the light and looking along, along it. And my prayer is that all of us uh, would step into that light again this weekend and look along the trajectory of Scripture and see the beauty of our Lord Jesus Christ, the descendant of the woman who came to die for our sins and rise again in victory. So let me pray. Father, we thank you for this incredible story of your kingdom.